0: howdy everyone welcome to your death sentence um so uh i am very good at timing and pacing so a mere i think three years after my first solo episode i'm back ready to give you my second solo episode and true to my word it is continuing my series on the uh uh complete works of Kazuo ishiguro um and because this is death sentence and uh i'm the buddha uh through the shedding of the wheel of dharma and the escape from the cycles of samsara i've been able to on my solo episode bring in eden hello eden
1: hello now we are we are one so this is still a solo episode
0: that's right um many aren't capable of understanding the powerful techniques that i wield but i've watched every episode of dragon ball and so i've got crazy techniques that you ain't even seen um now part of this is because um uh if you look at the timing (laughs) between the episodes it turns out i wasn't like failing to try to make the next solo episode I just like i couldn't get a take that was any fucking good like i would just sort of ramble and I was re-listening to the first one and I had some issues with it and so it's like eventually I was like Eden I need you to pop on more so I can talk at you about a book because the act of actually having a person that I'm conveying my thoughts to makes me order them in a way that isn't just me kind of blathering um, or at least blathering from my perspective Maybe other people didn't have any issue with uh, the episode at all. Um, but you're not me and I don't care about you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> also like he already had a Gula of me. That's a clone from the Dune universe. That's true. Um, I did. Yeah. So you already had a Gula of me and like, you're not, you're going to use it if you have the Gula, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's why you make them. I mean, like you ain't exactly. got all them. Duncan Idaho's just to look at, although Duncan Idaho, yeah. very beautiful. Um, beautiful man he looks like shit Indeed. actually technically in the in the book they they describe him as looking like a rugged fucked up piece of shit but
1: some people like that
0: that's right that's true you know the, i'm um, I'm not
1: gonna kink shame them because i'm a ghoul and subservient to your will that's so. right
0: um i'll kink shame you but that's because i'm of the elite mind that thinks that all sex should be illegal so that it's <laughs> hot to have any sex
1: mm, especially on tv
0: yes it's always forbidden, and that makes it hot, even if it's normal. Yeah. So the next book in Kazuo Ishiguro's um, body of work. So the first one was A Pale View of Hills. Um, came out in the mid to late 80s. I think that one was like 86. Um, when mm-hmm. you find The next one is um, An Artist of the Floating World which came out in... uh, No, this one came out in 86. I guess the other one came out in 84. Something like that. This is
1: not the King Arthur one, right?
0: No, that in in fact is his second to last book. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a bit before I get to that one. Um, So before I get into this, first I want to talk about how weird my brain is. So um, I had been deciding to do this whole series on Kazuo Ishiguro because, um, like many instances of great epiphanies on my end, um, someone said something that was so dumb that I was like, <laughs> that can't possibly be true. I'm going <laughs> to fact-check you as hard as I possibly can. Um, mm-hmm. And this was in the midst of me reading all of Kazuo Ishiguro's stuff just on my own. So um, uh probably have a similar history to it that um, Gareth had and maybe a similar one to you, Eden. I know at least one point is going to be more strongly um, bound up between me and Gareth. So if you go to a graduate English program, um, you will at some point read either all of or chunks of the remains of the day. It's just a, it, it's a massively acclaimed book. If you're studying contemporary English literature, it will come up. Um, famously at a book or not a book. I Have famously had a movie made out of it. I'll discuss that on the episode about it because um, it was cryptically inaccurate. Like it, it was fucking <laughs> weird of the decisions they made. Then I kind of forgot his name, and a number of years later, Never Let Me Go comes out, and that became like the, a huge book. That's one that I get. I, we haven't. I haven't checked with you, Eden, but I guarantee you've read that one.
1: Yeah. 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 Again, (laughs) you can't, you can't avoid it. It's like a massive meme, right?
0: Yeah. It was like literally anyone who read books when that one dropped, got it handed to them by someone. Um, and the name was familiar to me, but I didn't quite remember exactly who I think I may have double checked and been like, Oh, this guy wrote remains of the day. Um, and that one was one where people would talk about it in a way that I was like, that can't possibly be correct. Um, and you know, I'll get to that one when, when it's that book's time, but then uh, at some point much later, my my partner, who's we're getting married in May, but we've been living together for like six or seven years, so we're basically spouses already, um, was starting to read uh, more literary stuff after being in a relationship with me for a bit. And one of the things that they did is just sort of like a pet project, it was picking up works by Nobel laureates. Like, it didn't have to be a specific work, but it was just like... I want to get a feel for what people in that world of literature look for and appreciate within literature, um, and then you know maybe I'll like it too, um, which is the the best kind of open minded way to go into it. Where like you might go, well now I get what they look for, and I think it sucks, but you know I I understand it. Um, sh- not shockingly, they wound up liking it because it's hard to read. Um, like Louise Gluck and Annie Perrault and Kazuo Ishiguro one the Nobel, um, Tony Morrison did, like, it, you look at the the list of people who've won them, and you go, well, I guess I would have to be illiterate not to, like, any of these. That would be weird. At least some of it has
1: to click, right?
0: Right? I mean, it's, like, it's, it's an award that's been given to, like, everyone from Faulkner and Hemingway to, like, uh, literary nonfiction like in creative nonfiction writers but
1: but not also like win to the everlasting shame
0: yeah no that 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 one was that one was a bit goofy especially given that the requirement is you have to have either a utopian or a like a society improving bent to your literature which they tend most of the time now to read as somewhere in the socialist mode um, you don't have to be a full commie, but, like, you do have to have some kind of socialist mode. They they don't tend to give it to people who are avowed fascists. Hemingway has one. That's the weird—you know, you're going to find the weird— <laughs> I had to mention that immediately after what I said in case someone was like, well, Langdon, I—you know. But— um, so. It- Ishiguro had one and I was like well I know one of his books is fucking great because I read Remains of the Day and like everyone I was like that blew me away and never let me go I liked I thought it was a lot weaker than what people were telling me while still being like obviously a very good book so I was like I'm gonna read all of his shit because I looked it up and he only had at that time I think seven books because the Barry Giant had not yet come out and that one was his eighth so I was like okay no this is easy. And uh, I picked up what I thought was his first book, which is An Artist of the Floating World. Now, if you remember minutes ago when I started this or when I recorded the first episode, this is not his first book. This is his second. Um, (laughs) I'm just dumb. I mentioned that in a previous episode. Um, uh, Anyone who's close to me has encountered it. I am the stereotype of the um, uh, Intelligence 20 Wisdom 7 archetype um i just (laughs) so in keeping with that as i was reading through these i decided to read them all in order obviously after i read *Artists of the floating world i went back to his first one but then i started reading like remains of the day is his third book i read that one um i think the unconsoled is his fourth book read that one next and you know um on and on um and as I was doing that, I started developing um, kind of a thesis in my head, because another poison that me, Gareth, and Eden share, and this is one of the secret binding agents of Death Sentence, is we definitely still think like we're in academia, even though we're not. <laughs> um, <Eden's much laughs> more, even, Eden is much more adjacent to it now than the rest of the three of us, but, uh, both between like, oh, yeah. spousal stuff, and then also the fact that i'm not sure if anyone listening knows this you should if you don't shame on you but eden also talks at conferences and does um Mm, presentations at them semi-regularly it's like a couple a year um so stayed active in that world um gareth less so but more than me um and then i every now and again i'll write something that gets presented at a conference but i'm not the one presenting it which i find um fills my ego (laughs) Like when someone yeah, else that, goes, what's that, I what's will that discuss video
1: your... of someone talking about your black metal article? Was it?
0: Yeah, it was um, a piece called the dialectical Satan, which is um, a short version of what was a book length. Um, actually, I can just tell it because we're on death sentence. So I'd actually pitched when I was uh, writing for invisible oranges to the editor there at the time, Ian Corey, who is still friends to me. He's a great guy. Um, kind of gave me my shot in the metal writing world. Um, but I had pitched basically a book length serialized nonfiction thing. If you followed my writing elsewhere, it will not surprise you to hear that. I love my book length serialized (laughs) projects. I love them. Um, because again, I, I like to write like an academic without having to be in academia, um, para academia. Oh, I love that shit. Um, but I pitched something that would be about, uh, a historical analytic, uh, and um, theoretical analytic of usages of imagery of both Satan and Lucifer, which are different but conjoined myth objects, um, parsing their political information and eventually sort of culminating at the fact that they, in a certain way, must be used in left-wing formats. And if it's not that you can't use them in a right-wing mode, but doing so fundamentally undermines um like these foundation stones of the myth image um and presented the the bullet pointed outline was six pages long um and i started writing basically what the prologue would be so it's like a prelude manifesto type thing to be the opening and then the rest would follow and what happened without naming any names Uh, I ran into editorial hell, which a writer like Mm. me often (laughs) runs into because like, especially in a metal website where they're used to like, oh, it's, you know, 1,200 words about a record. Um, And that's like a longer review is like 1,200 words. I handed in a 4,000 word first chapter of what would have been like a 15 or 20 chapter thing. And one editor basically got so in the weeds with like, I don't think this is necessarily true. I don't think you can say that, Satan is inherently left-wing. There's so many instances of people not doing it, blah, 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 blah. And I would keep responding with like, "But th- this is, this is the prologue. Like this is the rest of the piece. We'll elaborate on it. Um, that eventually I was just like, fuck it. I'm not, I'm not writing for money in a certain way. Cause especially at that point, the gig wasn't paying. It is now. Um, And they, they, they pay pretty well and like competitive rates of other places, but at the time it wasn't. So I was like, if this isn't for money, I'm not going to, like, I have standards for my own work. Like my, my name's going to be on that byline, (laughs) not whoever edited it. So if I put out something that I don't think represents me well, other people will think it represents me well. So I'm just not going to do it. Um, And then when the book Uh, when the book Black Metal Rainbows was being put together, I had an opportunity to basically repitch the idea, but in like a shortened form. So it went from book length to about like 30 pages, 20, 30 pages, something like that. Um, It hits all the points. It's just significantly more condensed. Um, I still would like at some point to go do a full book length one. Um, I handed it in to them. The book took an eternity to come out due to publishing shit. To, to put it simply, it's like everyone was doing their absolute best, but um, publication has a process. Sometimes it's not enough. Oh yeah, and it's like yeah. It's, it, like every person involved is doing everything they can, but just shit keeps happening. Um, and then COVID happened, and blah 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 blah. Eventually, it comes out, and this is not me tooting my own horn um, too much, but I think my piece is the strongest one in the book. Um, I don't think there's much in the way of competition there this isn't to necessarily knock any of the other pieces in the book you know if anyone who is there happens to be listening but like one would hope that if i'm contributing something that i feel like it's the best because it or at least for a writer like me where it's like um my number one ambition is i want to unambiguously be the best I don't care if people like me. I want it to be: a, you read something, you go, "damn." Um, and I felt like I did that. <laughs> and then that was that was validated by the fact that a friend of mine, uh, Shalma Boyan, um, taught my paper in a class that he teaches for undergraduate and graduate students about um, usages of myth image, uh, specifically, especially um, Jewish myth image uh, within heavy metal and heavy metal culture and then as a result he um rewrote an element of like the unit that he was teaching for it uh in his in his college class uh as a presentation at a con- at the Jewish American um is it Jewish American or just Jewish culture conference i forget what it was called but yeah so he he <laughs> did a presentation on my paper at a, an academic conference which was um Very little is as flattering as someone reaching out to you and going, I want to present your work. Um, But yeah, it's like a, a good way to like capture how my brain works is I put together the thesis in my head about Kazuo Ishiguro's work and I can still remember pretty much all of it. Like that's why I'm able to sit down and record the second episode, you know, a couple of years after the first one, because while certain specific details about specific elements of this book have faded, the overall element of like, what do I want to do with this series? And then what do I need to do with this specific book to contribute to that is still pretty rich in my head. Like I have a couple novels that I put down about five, six years ago that I plan on getting back to. And I can just tell you where I stopped writing them now, um, six years on like, I will forget where I've put my keys. Um, I I forgot that we were recording an episode the last time we were doing it until Eden reminded me the day of, after the time that we were supposed to do it. But I can remember an outline for a project for like a decade.
1: It's all about priorities, right?
0: That's right. Um, So uh, as I mentioned in the episode for A Pale View of Hills, which... We're probably going to link with this because it's a couple of years old so that way you can find it. Um, but as I mentioned there, Kazuo Ishiguro is a British author of Japanese descent, by by which I mean his parents were both Japanese. He was born in Japan and in fact was raised there for the first several years of his life before they moved to Britain where he's lived since. Um, and despite this, only two of his works... Strongly and immediately engage with Japanese-ness qua Japanese-ness. Um, a Pale View, those being his first two novels, um, A Pale View of Hills was written, I think, as like his MFA thesis, and then it got polished up to be published. If I remember correctly, I could be wrong there. But that one dealt specifically with a Japanese immigrant coming to Britain and certain. Um, elements that were lost there um a brief recap of that one is it's a woman who has two daughters one of whom has committed suicide and the other one doesn't speak to her um they live in britain and she recounts basically her life in britain or not britain her life in japan before coming over um deals with some genre elements of like there's some elements of like river ghosts and slight implications of uh a of the supernatural that are definitely more metaphorical because also at a certain point you put together that when she's talking about her neighbor who had a daughter that she mistreated until the daughter um, kept in her, uh, engaging with basically a river ghost that more that may or may not have led to her death, that she's definitely talking about herself and cannot confront this guilt. So she has created this image in her mind of another version of herself that she witnessed um mostly because like that other character um winds up uh taking a a boat trip to immigrate to Britain uh with a white british man who her daughter doesn't like and feels no kinship with who may or may not have been abusive um which is implied to be how the narrating character got to Britain herself and so there's a lot of um that's that's where we first get introduced to this deep element within Ishiguro's Ishiguro's work, which is the capacity for self-deception. That is the fundament, in a lot of ways, of An Artist of the Floating World. So, An Artist of the Floating World, a brief um, plot synopsis. Uh, Thankfully, (laughs) for someone like me, his books are not very plotty, um, so the plot synopsis could be done in like two sentences, more or less. Um, There is a painter named Masuji Ono, Um, and it cuts back and forth between roughly two time periods. There's the before time period of like the twenties to the forties in which he's a young artist who is, he works in the traditional Japanese, uh, style. It's not that there aren't more modern painters active in Japan, but he specifically is one that emulates, um, traditional like shogunate era, um, painting and artistic works in fact the term the floating world initially referred to the period of peace uh under the tokugawa shogunate um and it's unsurprisingly reconfigured in the novel to refer to the um the period before world war ii where japan got to experience the uh, joys in a certain way of, of burgeoning modernity and those questions of modernity without having to face the gruesome realities of the price one pays to become modern, which in Japan's case was all of World War II, um, both in terms of crimes they committed and then crimes done to them, like this, this horrifically dual trauma of a war. Then there's the after period set in the 70s or 80s where he's a, an older man and the primary tension there is um, his daughter wants to get married um, and everyone treats him like shit in his family. And he doesn't really seem to get why the younger members of the family always treat him with a spurt, cast aspersions on him. Um, he like is disapproving of the marriage, but also in a certain way can't get approval from the person who's going to be marrying and it frustrates him in a clear way because it's he's so used to deference being paid to older generations and the way that he phrases it is like, oh, you know, the newer generation, something happened in Japan and they don't really care for their their elders in a certain way anymore. But if you know Ishiguro and also if you can read, (laughs) to be blunt, you start picking up like, I don't think that's why he doesn't like you. I don't know what it is but I don't think that's it. And at a certain point, if you start reading it, they keep referring to uh, 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 Masuji as like shameful, and like, oh, that mm-hmm. shameful old man. I, I'm not going to be lectured by him. And you go, oh, okay, you know. And it's it's there's pre and post war stuff. So you're like, okay, something happened during the war. Something occurred, and that's what's being talked about here. And it sort of cost him all of his his honor and his esteem. But notably, the book's written in the first person, it's not, and the narrator, who is Masuji himself, at no point seems even remotely cognizant that anything could have occurred that would have cost him shame. He's completely and seemingly sincerely befuddled at why people aren't showing him respect and honestly thinks it's that the way that American culture has infiltrated Japan with pop stars and shopping malls and stuff like that. has just really degraded the social fabric and removed a lot of the like sense of like earned respect that one's elders might get. If that seems familiar to a Western audience about how like conservatives and boomers talk about the good old days and how to be fair, when they were younger, their parents would talk about the good old days. That's not indeliberate because again, this is the only book of Ishiguro's that is set entirely in Japan and deal it grapples a great deal with japanese But as we'll see is when we talk about other things, his bigger project is more a hypercritical project engaging with the, the West and sort of the myth images of the West. Um, this just feels like, in a certain way, work he had to do to triage elements of his own, like, personal and familial cultural history before he could more strongly focus on Britain. But these elements being able to match up so well with Britain is not incidental, um, which, when I talk about Remains of the Day, that will be made abundantly clear. But for this one, um, what you eventually get is this reveal, as you go on, that during World War II... um, the japanese imperial government reaches out to the various traditional painters um who were painting in you know the the classic like rice paper and like big um brushes that where you're deliberately meant to show the brush stroke um honestly you know really gorgeous art i mean one of the frustrating things in a certain way of return types is none of us are denying that the art and yeah. cultural elements they're referring to are beautiful and are worthwhile. Like, that's not really the argument. Um, the the slipperiness there of, like, these are things of value. Um, it's going to become relevant in a second. Um, so the Empire reaches out to them and go, we want you to make propaganda posters for the Japanese people and for the Japanese army. Um, and the guy's master um in their their painting studio basically keeps saying no he goes no that's not what artists do that's a betrayal of the virtues of artists um we are not here to promote war especially not this war um misuji doesn't understand it he goes there's nothing more honorable for us in our culture than to serve these hierarchies that's what the art we're making is about so it feels if anything fundamentally dishonest to say that we shouldn't be making this um this becomes a major point of conflict as he's trying to convince his uh uh the the master in the studio like hey no we really should be making work for our troops and work for our government and his his master who clearly is um Again, since this is portrayed from Misu Onu's mouth, he implies that there's some political leanings that he doesn't quite agree with that is that are tainting his master. People who know about Japanese history will know that both socialist and communist thought were present in Japan and that there were, in fact, anti-war protests against the imperial yeah. aggression during world war 2. Famously, these were the first people put into like unit 731 camps and certain camps for political prisoners. Um unsu- unsurprisingly, like every government when it gets into such a severe and ideologically potent war will make political prisoners um and then torture the ever loving fuck out of them. Um as they do. So, yep. So um Ono does something and the master is removed and they're working and everyone starts treating Ono real weird at the, uh, at, uh, the, um, the studio. If you're not dumb, you can figure out this man has sold out his master, uh, to the secret police for, for his political leanings. There's then another person in... Uh, in the studio, who is, like, his artistic rival in kind of a positive sense, like, in in the way that, like, you meet someone who's very similar to you, and they push you to become the best version of yourself. uh, Yeah, like a middle image. Exactly. Um, He sells that guy out, too. Um, Famously, he sells that guy (laughs) out uh, after it becomes apparent that the government really likes Ono's work. They really think that he's making really strong propaganda stuff, and that, like, if they can just really give him the juice they can go further and the guy basically complains about it and is like I feel really gross I think our master was right like this feels wrong and um, surprisingly he isn't there the next time that they you know all sit down to get to work and notably no one sees him for decades Um, or at least Ono believes that no one has seen him for decades so the war finishes and the nature of Ono's disgrace starts becoming a lot more apparent to us. Even if Ono himself, the first person narrator, never says a goddamn word about it. The rest of Japan, and this is this is a real historical fact outside of um, ultra-conservative spaces, they look back on the imperial period of Japan, and especially the level of imperial aggression, with a tremendous amount of shame. Um... That's one of the reasons that the Americanization uh, during the occupation and after was able to be as successful as it was, was because there was a fracturous feeling within Japan regarding Hirohito and high command and the nature of um, Japanese action. We get presented the myth image that there was this monochromatic social fabric that all loved... You know, oh, I can't wait to be a kamikaze pilot. Not true. We have letters from kamikaze pilots writing home saying they're fucking terrified of what they're about to do. Um, oh, everyone yep. supported the war. They never would have surrendered. They they thought uh, Americans were going to eat them. They may or may not have thought Americans were going to eat them, and frankly, that may or may not have been like true if if we had done a ground invasion because American armies routinely do really fucked up things. But. Um, no there was there was large peace demonstrations until they were violently cracked down on um in fact uh the writer of akira um writes pretty uh, cogently cuz he was part of anti-war um protests uh, not during world war 2 but like uh he was part of anti-war protests and had um like uh, like masters and mentors in those environments that also protested including against world war ii and so there is this long legacy of japanese uh communist and japanese socialist protests against those that were then violently cracked down on um the fact that ishiguro is invoking these without naming them and doing so through the voice the mouthpiece voice of someone who was an imperial puppet um reveals an important part of his politics that of Pale View of Hills didn't strictly reveal. So if a Pale View of Hills focused on how like Japanese cultural environments of patriarchal shame and familial shame uh, work to silence the, the pain and confusion that people feel and don't allow them to actually mitigate it. Meanwhile, the supposed openness of the West also doesn't seem to help us resolve pain. It helps us hold pain and communicate pain, but not necessarily to resolve it in a gainful, productive way. Here he takes a substantially more political bent, that he's looking at the ways in which machinery of fascism um, seemingly slowly appear in front of people and the mundane reality that at no point, it's all written from Misugiono's point of view, so we know this, at no point does he consider himself evil. At no point does he even think like, "Oh, you know my compatriot's going to get the bejesus tortured out of him, but you know he deserves it because he doesn't you know support the country enough. There's certain language that we on the left will ascribe to right wingers and that to be fair, we can even catch them using sometimes that if you were to follow them day to day, they largely aren't thinking, which is yeah. a little which is a little bit weird to think about, I think for some people that that the machine, These machineries of evil do not require someone to sit and constantly think actively malicious, actively violent thoughts. All they need you to do is in the moment of duress, make the right choice for them. And it doesn't even matter if it comes from a place of hate or a place of um, mundane self-interest or anything like that. That's how these engines operate. I mean, we even get to tie back the conversations that we were having about um israel and palestine which obviously is still really fucking heavy on our minds um yeah the vast majority of the israeli populace is not actively carrying out colonial violence and so presenting that as as the truth is is quite misleading this doesn't mean (laughs) there isn't a contribution however but the contribution is very similar to the way that a lay american contributes to american colonial violence Mm -hmm. where it's like if it was something that was present in your day-to-day life that you could see that you could pinpoint that you could make discrete, you could stop it you could confront it 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 needs to work the way that these structures have to operate is it has to be a slow continuous sort of through the backdoor operation that it's in the case of um uh in the case of the west it's the way that uh like tax dollars for uh, in the U S and Canadian economies get tied via pork on bills to generate the uh, the foreign payments and foreign investments and payments, not just in money, but also in bombs, in jets, in tanks, in engineering information that make the colonial violence in Palestine possible. And it's like, you don't even have to consent. All you have to do is go buy stuff. And it's like, this isn't, necessarily to invoke the liberal idea of like well then just go change the law although that would help to be fair it, it wouldn't fix everything but it would help um yeah but it is to say that like this is very similar in any kind of place of of imperial violence like you honest to god you can even have people who abhor the violence but so long as they are performing certain mechanical duties they will contribute in certain ways now obviously Masuji is a bit further than that he sold out people to the secret police that's that is demonstrably worse than paying normal taxes because you don't because taxes aren't optional it's not like you can go nah i'm protesting taxes by only (laughs) paying you the object price because the store just won't let you buy it um and also you know selling someone out to the secret police to go get fucking tortured is worse than buying a candy bar it just is I I don't need to explain that to you. (laughs) Um, The end of the book winds up having him visit the artist that he'd sold out. And they have the most tense, go nowhere conversation that you could imagine. Um, And again, this is a moment where I think people who don't like literary work would probably struggle because it's not a confrontation. There is body language that indicates that Ono knows that he's confronting his shame and that the guy in front of him is boiling with rage, but also knows in a certain way that culture has vindicated him. That like this man is treated like a guy who martyred himself for political beliefs. And as much as that's a brutal sacrifice, he is at least defended culturally and through the, the, the honor of the modern day, where it's like by the 60s, 70s, early 80s, as Japan became a rising economy, um, it became sort of this common view that the vehicle that led us to become this rising economy is good, and the imperial format, which nearly got us destroyed, is bad. the the dual The dual thought about the dropping of the nuclear bomb in Japan, which is um, this is <laughs> as an American, my stance is pretty simple: it was so fucked that we did that; it was just evil. Yeah. To get that out of the way. The Japanese understanding of it is slightly different um, in that it has a, a, a stunningly remarkable amount of nuance that you would not... That, frankly, isn't necessary in the wake of something so horrific being done to a people. And that's that while the dropping of the bombs was absolutely horrific, like it is no doubt especially the number of civilian casualties both in the blast and in the years and years after the blast like you can't argue that that's not a horror um there is a sense of cultural shame where it's like we weren't nuked for no reason we committed these war crimes in unit 7 31, in Nanking, in Manchuria, like throughout the body of China, throughout Southeast Asia. And while the bombing itself was not because we'd carried out these crimes, it wasn't like stated that this was a tit for tat. There is that sense of like, how can we who are so guilty of so much violence take too strong of a stand against a reciprocal violence done unto us? And that's a level of nuance that, like, only those in the guilty seat, so to speak, um, sort of can have of that, like... Clearly, at a certain point, this isn't just um, a real thought within the Japanese social structure, which at that time it was. Like, um, the fact that Yukio Mishima, um, brilliant, brilliant author, um, deep and avowed fascist, kind of good that he's dead um the reason why his military coup where he wanted to reinstate um the the imperial form not just having an emperor but like specifically the imperial form of like the shogunate slash if we really want to be serious world war ii um he was considered crazy even by conservatives of his time we can see a similar breakage and we mentioned this before in the way that like the shape of fascism in the West has lots of different complex configurations and the neoconservative form of like bureaucratic fascism really hates the narcissistic uh, form of fascism of like Trump. That's why you get things like Rumsfeld and George W. Bush, avowed fascists, bad people, really, really hate Trump because it's like that's not the way that you're supposed to be an evil piece of shit in their book. Mm-hmm. Similarly, in Japan, there was this disavowal of like, okay, the imperial form gets us nuked. Because, like, other other nations weren't nuked. Like, th- this becomes ultimately a, a a stone that has to weigh on us. Now, unfortunately obviously through time we've learned that a large reason why the nuke was deployed on Japan was because one, we didn't want to make Europe unusable because we already kind of knew that you're not going to be able to rebuild anything in a nuclear blast zone for quite a while. And we wanted Europe to be rebuildable because of white supremacy um, and Eurocentrism. Uh, And then also we wanted it to be done as close to uh, Russia as possible to, to freak them out. Um, which didn't even really work because they had already learned that we had the nuke before then and it did a whole bunch of shit. So, but, um, so he has this confrontation that isn't really a confrontation. And when he returns back to his family, all he says is basically like, I went and I, um, I talked to him and, uh, yeah, we had a chat and, uh, yeah, I think things are okay now. And he says it in a way that, again, without, he is too prideful to say, I confronted this thing that's been weighing on my mind for decades. But, like, you, the reader, know that, like, oh, in retrospect, you've been so evasive about this topic. You can't. He never even mentions, I sold out my friend to the secret police. I went drinking with this guy every day for years, and I still sold him out because he gave me a career advantage. He never says that he's even guilty of that. You know it, but he doesn't say it because, again, that theme within Ishiguro of the power of self-deception. This man has had decades to put this shame away. but only as much as one can ever put shame away. They know the guilt, but they cannot name it, because naming it would mean facing it, and facing it would mean having to accept it. And he wants nothing more than to just walk away from the guilt. You then get this better understanding that his reticence at looking at the shape of modern culture isn't so much that he has coherent complaints about modern culture although some of them are fair they're not like they're not totally wrong but you get that they're coming from the fact that this is a world built off of the notion that everything he did as a young adult man into middle adulthood was not just wrong it was evil and that everyone knows that he's guilty of that like his daughter will only kind of defend him um, and in the sense of like, hey, that's my, that's my dad. Um, or it may have been like her, her his granddaughter. Um, I forget the exact relation, but it's pretty much just like, hey, that's my family. But not, hey, you're wrong. Hey, no, he's actually a decent person. Um, and likewise, when he conveys to his family, I went to go see him. They're aware that this was a rubbing your own nose in the shit that you left on the carpet moment. He never says that, but they know like, oh, you did that because you needed to come face to face with the man whose life you nearly fucking completely ruined, that you're surprised he's even still alive. Um, And you telling us that means that we can now peacefully get married because there was a hang up of like the other family didn't want to marry into his family because this guy's a fucking war criminal in their mind. And all this effort was being put in by the future generations to go, I'm not a war criminal. That's 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 my family. Um, and I love them the way that one loves family, but I'm not proud of the things that they've done. But I'm also not that kind of person. And it slowly dawns on him that he will fuck over his own family if he doesn't confront this this monumental shame that everyone is aware of. And it speaks to one of the tremendous potencies that Ishiguro has of how much within a novel of his goes completely unstated like like not even just that like oh they hint at it but they don't give you the resolution they don't even hint at a lot of this stuff but like if you're if you're semi-cognizant of the of the era that it's set in of certain cultural relations or if you just google shit because we live in the modern day let's not pretend we can't google shit um (laughs) it starts swimming up and the book all of a sudden unlocks the fact that nothing happens in this book. It's a bunch of a guy remembering how he would paint and then remembering conversations where his family's kind of rude to him. And then it ends, nothing else happens, <clears throat> but you put all this other stuff together and you start seeing it. Um, as a man who is a riven with shame at all moments Um, who is driven by the desire to escape shame, to wield shame against others. Um, the kind of dark, nearly erotic thrill he gets from selling out his, uh, compatriots and then having to face in the cold light of day, you know, the fruit of that. This was a hell of a book to be the first real time I read Ishiguro. Because, I mean, outside of grad school, outside of, like, the buzz of Never Let Me Go, this was the first time I just went, I'm going to sit down with a book of his, and I'm going. And it was after reading this that I was like, I'm going to read all of the rest of his work. Because it, that was a thing that had been missing for me for a while. Not that I don't, and haven't, hadn't read literary stuff before, but it's like, I can't describe how big of a shift this book and everything for me with him that came after, of a shift he sparked in me in my writing of like, how do I want my written work to move, to feel, to, to operate? Um, It's also a thing that reminds me so much of um, why, and I mentioned this in episode zero of our uh, um, book of the new sun series. Mm -hmm. I mentioned to a lot of people that if you're most familiar with genre fiction, if you, read you know really plotty and plot heavy science fiction fantasy some horror stuff you know you've read your R.A. Salvatore you've read your Robert Jordan you've read George R. R. Martin this isn't to knock him as a writer but he still he is less literary than Kazuo Ishiguro I think he would admit that too I don't (laughs) think that's a sinking criticism (laughs) oh he's less literary than the guy who won a fucking Nobel you know yeah um but Gene Wolfe really is in so many ways like the decoder ring for what differentiates literary fiction from genre fiction and it's not the fact that there's a spaceship it's not the fact that there are dragons because there's as all that helps it does because <laughs> there, <laughs> there's plenty of really really tremendously brilliant um literary fiction that happens to have all these genre stuff that is a sci-fi book that is a fantasy book all that kind of stuff um Ishiguro himself has a couple like we already i already discussed his slightly horror book um horror more in the a24 way than the um splatterpunk way but yeah <clears throat> um he does have <coughs> a fantasy novel he has a gumshoe detective novel which i'm going to mention he has a kind of sci-fi Two kind of sci fi novels in that they are sci fi, but they really don't care about the sci fi part of themselves. Um, to be fair, most great sci fi doesn't either. Um, but Gene Wolfe, you really can't read Book of the New Sun without eventually learning how to read like a literary, the- uh, like a like a literary fiction reader. Because so much of that book, as we covered, occurs between the lines, underneath the lines, is an unstated thing that you pick up through innuendo, and that he wants you to linger on an image, but let you feel trembling in this weird way, swim up inside you. What does that image mean? Like we were talking the other day while watching um this movie called The Circle of Iron with David Carradine, and it was supposed it was the first posthumous Bruce Lee work that came out um, but it was just one that he wrote but it's also one that he abandoned because people kept fucking with the script long weird <laughs> process there <clears throat> we are watching it and there's a scene where a guy's battling a bunch of ape men in a cave and me and my boy Preston who I introduced Gene Wolfe to and immediately after we read Book of the New Sun, Gene Wolfe became his favorite author and he immediately got really into literary stuff as happens um, Gene Wolfe gives you the bug um we were like oh no bro you can't fight those ape men you ain't got the claw they only will uh respond to the one who wields the claw (laughs) and then like after he fought the ape man and had to leave he was like oh he hears the thundering in the deep and he doesn't know what that is right now but later he will and that's why he's leaving (laughs) um but like the way in which Ishiguro structured this novel just was so deeply spellbinding to me and the way that it was because it also followed that mode that we see some people get really tired of, and I get, but I think is ultimately necessary, which is writing about evil, structures of evil, structures of fascism from the point of view of the people doing it. Because we have this, um, the common complaint that I've seen is I'm tired of seeing stories where the Nazi in modern day is... um, like he's apologetic um, and, you know, he <clears throat> he wishes he could make it up to everyone because that's regretful. Not, yeah, the whole regretful Nazi thing. And this shows, I think, one, the power, but to the necessity of things like that. But when they're handled correctly, for lack of a better word, um, because like so many things, I think the real issue isn't that archetypal form but how people use that archetypal form so in this case mm-hmm. it's someone who was part of a fascist state who sent people to death camps who only miraculously survived the guy comes back and he's um he's wheelchair bound um I know the current contemporary discourse around disability says that people should be referred to as wheelchair users. This guy's not a wheelchair user. This guy's wheelchair bound. He is, he has a lot of angst about being in that wheelchair. Um, It is not rejoiceful at all. Um, And it's, it's harrowing to hear him described because it makes it abundantly clear to you like, Oh, this all happened in the fucking camp. Um, Like this guy got tortured and is like, it it's either a miracle that he survived or a curse that he survived. It's nothing in between. <clears throat> but the the demonstration of him I'm actually gonna read a little bit of the back the back blurb and then critique it. He relives the passage through his personal history that makes him both a hero and a coward, but above all, a human being. Hmm. That blurb is very bad. Um yeah. be blunt. Yeah. But if I had to read uh, one of my autistic uh, traits that many find annoying or insightful, um, or both, is I like to look at something that people say and go, "If I were to try to convey the same thought, how would I do it to make it better?" And in this case, I would strike hero. This man is not a hero at any point, even in his own narrative. Um, but that notion of the human is is, I think, the fundamental component here is it's not portrayed as he's a magical like like he's not goose stepping and going like i can't wait to do racial violence i'm so horny for racial violence like (laughs) he's not because that's the other thing is we sometimes even when presenting nazis and things like that present them as cartoon characters and it's not to say that there weren't ones that are like that because there were but a huge amount were and this should be more disturbing they would look and feel and appear completely normal except they're okay Mm -hmm. with tremendous horrific uh violence both on anti-semitic um against uh, uh roma and like all associated people so roma travelers the um i found out there is a group that do in fact call themselves gypsies but they are only in britain i don't understand I have a friend who's part of the GRT community and was informing me about that. It's, it's worth Googling if you're not a member of that community. Cause I'm not, I didn't know anything about that. Um, we all do our best not to slur people. Um, so that was yeah. interesting to hear from them that the deep of av- avoidance of that word winds up making people in one very real community that does get lumped in feel functionally marginalized by their stated allies. That's a little aside, but, um, that, like in the case of this novel, it's a guy who clearly isn't thinking, I want to go do evil, but he does. He does do real evil. He does do real tremendous harm and everyone kind of rightly castigates him for it because he's also notably shown no sign of contrition. But that's not quite true. It's not that he hasn't shown no sign of contrition. It's that he wants contrition to somehow already be paid. So this sort of cuts at the core of like, The remorseful Nazi is, in fact, largely a real thing. But what is that remorse? And it's not that in none of them they don't regret the things that they did. I'm certain there are some that regretted, I did something evil, and I don't know how to live with myself. A lot of those people probably killed themselves. And frankly, I kind of get it. Um, Yeah. But so many of them definitely had regret, but regret of a specific form Ironically, someone who talks very well about this is Arnold Schwarzenegger growing up uh, Mm. in Austria uh, after World War II, where the ex-Nazis would look ugly, ashamed, you know, uh, they'd drink a lot, they'd be violent at home um, because they couldn't really bear what they'd done. But the way in which they couldn't bear what they'd done was this fact of looking around at the culture around them and going, I am a loser. I lost. I lost. I bet everything, I bet my moral fabric and the way that I would be viewed in the future on this thing, and I lost. I can't get this back. Um, And we have this myth, and not really a myth, but we have like a half myth that most Nazis got sort of picked up by governments and given cushy government appointments and weren't really punished for what they did. That's not quite true. A number were, um, which is horrific and horrible, Fuck you, Operation Paperclip, and all the various versions of it. Russia even had a slight version of it, which is god awful. <clears throat> they did send most of their Nazis to jail, but they hired a couple, and that's more than fucking zero, which is the amount it should have been. Um, <clears throat> but there were a large number of regular people who, similar to Confederates after World War, uh, after the Civil War, the reason why there are so many bandits in wild west stories is because they take place after the civil war and having served in the confederate army was a punishable crime and so so many people abandoned their families and just horsed out west and would lie low and rob people because if they went to a regular city they'd get arrested like that's that's literally where that image of the wild west bandit comes from is people fleeing Mm -hmm. one of the most common war crimes that you can commit not in the lay sense, but in the like legal sense of having served in the army that lost, that this is a punishable crime. And so the reality of that remorse is some people are legitimately remorseful because if you leave someone alone for decades to confront the world that emerges after them, they might have that epiphanic moment. Now it's a different thing, whether that epiphany is enough, um, Completely different conversation, but a number will still generate remorse, but the remorse is one of self hatred <clears throat> It's not of the kind of redemptive remorse it's in the sense of I look out and I see me being a loser cast back at me. I see that like I will go to my grave and people will think that I'm ugly, stupid, and wicked, and there's nothing I can do to fix this, and the amount of like rage and that can contort within someone this The fact that Ishiguro was able to convey that much anger and self-hatred in such a muted way, I think would trip up certain kinds of readers, but to me was so, like, profoundly powerful, it felt like I was getting punched in the back of the head. It was... um, psychotically brilliant in like how it portrayed the psyche of the self deluding person. We even see this culturally in the way that <clears throat> again, a lot of people consider themselves above it, but we've been seeing people try to like culturally rehabilitate George Bush after <clears throat> yeah. straight up crimes against humanity. Um, yeah, <clears throat> We've been seeing people try to swipe under the rug Um, crimes that Obama had committed that were similar crimes against humanity not always exactly equal but many that were in fact equal Um, we even see this in local uh, scene politics without getting too into bullshit that I don't even really care about anymore but with people that will be crass and manipulative to the great damage of the social fabric around them and then they will be cast out but seemingly only by other people that are equally as crass and self-centered and damaging to the social fabric around them because it becomes this cycle of narcissistic figures who whip up sort of like miniature cults of personality around themselves that they weaponize against each other in territorial squabbles. Nirvana wrote a fucking song about this. This has been present in punk and underground in metal circles since time immemorial because it's a human problem. It's not a it's not an art problem. Um That intense political focus here, that his anger is at a formulation of fascism and his rejoicing is in a formulation of socialist resistance, I think might get, I think might lead certain people to read An Artist of the Floating World um, and especially certain, it's like Barack Obama went buzzy about Ishiguro because a bunch of people did. Um, I think it might lead to the thing that a lot of people perceive him as, which is ultimately like a liberal writer. And I think that's pretty fundamentally untrue. Like, if you start here, it reads like the neoliberal Japan of the 60s, 70s, and 80s is great. It's fucking awesome. The future is so bright. Everything is so wonderful compared to nasty, drab, dour... Uh, for some reason, it's always in black and white and it's always reigning fascist Japan. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: And it's not that he doesn't. He is blunt that like the neoliberal Japan is better than the fascist Japan. That just is true. But better doesn't mean good. There's still a lot of room. This gets mitigated heavily when you remember this is his second book. The first book is entirely about how that neoliberal culture still was shackled by so many structures of shame and silence and communal guilt that um, and personal guilt and familial guilt, like these structures of shame and humiliation that on paper are built out of the language of justice. They go, you've done wrong or you've fallen short of your community and you need to rebuild yourself. But the reality is you don't ever get to rebuild. You get to be shamed forever. These are shames that don't wash out. And these are shames that anyone can wield against you. And this is why the suicide epidemic becomes so high because you can't ever wash it clean. The only thing that washes it clean, and they presents it in a pale view of hills, is suicide, not because people think that that's the debt that you have to pay. Because if they said that out loud, they'd feel that they were monsters. Because they would be. Uh, No, it's that when you commit suicide, now it's hard to talk about the shame that you felt. Even though it's shame that we made you feel until you killed yourself. So again, it becomes that... That level of self-deception that, like, death doesn't pay the price because the price is death. Death pays the price because if I confront that my actions shaming and humiliating you publicly so continuously made you kill yourself, I would realize I, too, am guilty. Mm-hmm. And so when you add that in, he is not hes not saying the world that the Japan became after World War II is magically great um it's just him beginning here with these two works to lay down the stones of thinking in these macro scale societal ways but doing so through these miniature portraits so like in a pale view of hills it's about a woman and her relationship with her children one of whom has passed and one of whom hasn't in fact it's unclear um depending on your read, in A Pale View of Hills, whether she has two daughters, or whether it may in fact be that while she says out loud, I do have two daughters, the other one's mad at me because her sister killed herself, that other, that other daughter doesn't speak to her anymore. It could be that this is a figurative kind of suicide where it's like you've distanced yourself from me to the point where it feels like you've died. Um, in here, it's the portraiture of an old man who is forced by society to face his guilt again and again and again, but refuses to do so because he isn't strong enough to face that guilt. Mm-hmm. He just simply isn't. Um, he should be. And his the only thing that makes him do it eventually is the fact that his his family needs him to. And this isn't even presented as a rejoiceful thing. His His family is happy that he did it, but it's deliberately left feeling a little bit sour where you're like, you're a cowardly piece of shit. Um, This sets up really well where Ishiguro will go with his next book, The Remains of the Day, which in so many ways is a recapitulation of An Artist of the Floating World nearly point by point. Like there's so, the similarities are like 70% of the book is nearly the same and nearly exactly the same. But the difference is the remains of the day is set in the aristocracy of the old world of old money in England during the rise of fascism, as opposed to uh, the sort of uh, culturally conservative and culturally uh, uh, historically leaning uh, branches of Japanese culture. Um, It's about at that point that the project of Ishiguro is being sharply critical of how fascism transformed into the neoliberalism of the 20th century <clears throat> but did not satisfactorily dissipate starts to really come into focus but these two works which are the sort of the close of the deeply japanese wing of his work offer a lot of i think necessary decoding information that uh primes us to properly read what comes after. Uh, And that's an artist of the floating world by Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, So as outro music, um, it's the end of the year uh, right Mm -hmm. now as we're recording this. So there aren't, there isn't much in the way of like new records. There are a couple. Um, I, I have uh, 25 tabs open of new records. Um, (laughs) There's not much per hour world. where like, I don't know how many records you listen to on average even a week when going, when in the midst of like music review season, but enough, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well into the double digits. Um, Oh
1: yeah.
0: Uh, so I'm actually going to reward myself and with you guys with, um, a much older record. This is, um, an old, I think Swiss punk band called cortex, um, mm. that, uh, they're a hardcore band that also dabbled in post-punk and goth rock and uh, from the late 70s into the mid-80s. Um, really fantastic stuff. They famously got covered uh, by In Solitude on In Solitude's last record. Um, the final track on the final album by In Solitude was a song called Jesus y Vuitton, um, which was originally by Cortex. Um, the one that one's worth checking out. Fucking love you in solitude. Fucking miss you. Such a good band. Um but I want to play for you guys the Cortex version. Um thankfully if you're into supporting music, um their stuff's on Bandcamp. If you're not into supporting music, their stuff's on Spotify. <laughs> 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 oh, I hate you Spotify so much. Um but yeah, so this is Cortex with Jesus E Betong. we we'll